So, Psalms. Difficult book to teach on a Sunday morning. Uh, 150 Psalms, and, and although they're full of, of so many joyous and wonderful things, three, three and a half, four years, that's a long time to be in the Psalms, right? Uh, and so that can pose a difficulty. So one of the solutions is to say, well, let's do five Psalms at a time. And then you're moving so fast that all you're doing is reading them essentially and giving some kind of an overview. And so that doesn't seem to do them justice. Um, really no good way to do it, but we're gonna start a series in the Psalms where we take selected Psalms each Sunday for quite a while. And uh, we may go in order, we may not go in order. It just depends on what the Lord puts on our hearts. I'd actually like to hear from you. Uh, go over to the Welcome Center and write down your favorite Psalm or Psalms uh, so that we maybe will hit some of those. And uh, we'll do some favorites, obviously, and some that are little known. But uh, today we're going to start that series on the Psalms. And Psalms also difficult to teach because they're poetry and they're songs. And, and they, they actually defy the same kind of exposition that you want to do, let's say, in 1 Corinthians. Uh, because, uh, you know, to, the songs that really move you, the songs that, that you know, I was going to say really groove you. <laughs> He got the way to groove you, baby. But anyway, um, you know, you don't spend a lot of time analyzing them and taking them apart and wondering what the author had in mind. And, and so uh, it, it's going to be, you know, we're going to hit the ground running and just see what the Lord has for us in the Psalms and try not to ruin them for you is, I guess, what I'm saying by making them so analytical that you miss some of the emotion. So today we're in Psalm 5. Our text is Psalm 5. And the topic we'll find there, David asks God to give ear to his morning prayer. The title of our message, Ear Ye, Ear Ye. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for this time together this Sunday morning. And Lord, for these Psalm Sundays that we're going to spend together, uh, Lord willing, and you don't come for us in the rapture. Uh, I pray that you would guide and direct us that th these meaningful psalms would just get down into our hearts, Lord, in a new and precious way, uh, that we would um, be free, Lord, to express our own emotion uh, in our hearts as, as we see how much you love us. We thank you and praise you. We do it in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. You Dr. Pepper lovers, both of you, <laughs> should know the answer to this question. When are you supposed to drink Dr. Pepper? 10, 2, and 4. Ten, two, and four. <laughs> who, else knew, who else didn't know that? Oh, huh, maybe you don't like Dr. Pepper as much as you thought. In the 1920s, Dr. Walter Eddy, Columbia University, studied the body's metabolism. He discovered that a natural drop in energy occurs about 10.30 a.m., 2.30 p.m., and 4.30 p.m. He also discovered that if the people in his research study had something to eat or drink at 10, 2, and 4, the energy slump would be avoided, hence drink Dr. Pepper at 10, 2, and 4. Is it still on the bottle cap, those of you who dare to drink Dr. Pepper? No? They've had several ad campaigns since that, but that was the famous one. At 10, 2, and 4, you'll always want more, not a cola. Not a root beer. That's a mess I remember. <laughs> Probably had nothing to do with a slump in spiritual energy, but Jews developed a habit of praying three times daily, evening, morning, and afternoon, each within specific determined hours. 
Daniel famously was thrown into the lion's den when he defied the king's edict by praying three times daily as he had always done. The apostles Peter and John were used to heal the lame man as they went up together to the temple at one of the hours of prayer. King David prayed three times daily. He said of himself in Psalm 55, 17, evening and morning and at noon, I will pray and cry aloud and he shall hear my voice. Psalm 5 is a morning prayer of David's. It reveals how he started at least one day in his long life of seeking after and serving God. We'll see as we get into it that he was asking the Lord to lead him on a path of righteousness through the perils posed by his many enemies. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, your righteous path is plotted by prayer. And number two, your righteous path is imperiled by the profane. Take a look at your righteous path, beginning in verse one, of course. It was interesting, while I was typing out this study on my iPad, an email notification popped up. It said, no kidding, pray more powerfully, save up to 31%. I know it wasn't meant this way, but it comes across as if I've really been wanting to pray more powerfully, but I just can't afford it. Lord, I want to pray powerful prayers, but you're going to have to give me a raise if that's going to happen. (laughs) But with the 31% discount on the book they're peddling, I can start praying more powerfully in about a week once I receive the book and actually read it. Or I thought I could just pray. And so David's going to just pray beginning in verse one. He says to the chief musician with flutes, a Psalm of David, give ear to my words. O Lord, consider my meditation. David was a musician himself. He was a maker and inventor of musical instruments, and he was a prolific composer. He organized the worship of God in the tabernacle. His three chief musicians were Asaph, Heman, and Jeduthun. He delivered this song to one or all of them and told them he wrote it for flute accompaniment. You ever get excited when a favorite musical artist drops a new song and you can't wait to listen to it? Imagine the thrill of receiving one of the 75 Psalms of David to arrange and then perform, knowing that it was inspired by God. Psalm 4 ended with David going to sleep, saying, I will both lie down in peace and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Next morning, he remained in an attitude of prayer and looked forward to his morning prayer time. And so David, obviously a man of prayer, Uh, uh, love to converse and and communicate with the Lord. This prayer was put to flute. It was meant to be sung. We sing a lot here, corporately praising God, but I wondered if we ever sing our prayers in private. Uh, Did you ever try that? Just for fun? Do it in the shower. You're singing anyway, right? Instead of singing in Agata Devita, you could pray. (laughs) That came on the radio the other day. Luckily, the short version some people are saying, what's, what's he talking about? God, God is not a diva. No, anyway, I'll explain it later. Famous song by Iron Butterfly with a 300-minute drum solo. Uh, that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but actually one whole side of the album is uh, that song with a drum solo. I used to have that album. Anyway, um, try it. Sing your songs or sing your prayers, rather. Give ear to my words, O Lord. As I mentioned, David is credited with penning 75 of the Psalms. I read a few of them and noticed he had no standard opening when he talked to God. 
If you want, you can look quickly at the opening words of Psalms 4, 5, 6, and 7, all attributed to David, and see what I'm talking about, that they all begin differently. It prompted me to wonder how I start my prayers, and is it always the same? Uh, not that the... Not to criticize, I mean, that can be sincere, but it's also easy for us to fall into religious habits and always come before God actually with the same words over and over again. Something we criticize people for because we're the people who say it's a relationship, not a religion. Uh, And so, you know, when I talk to other people and they talk to me, we generally approach it differently each time. We don't have the same conversation each time. Uh, Otherwise, that would be weird. And so, uh, you know, think about how you're praying uh, and what just because we don't want to make it ritualistic. Prayer shouldn't be something that I can do without thinking about it. I remember that was one of the the things that kind of bothered me when I was uh, raised Roman Catholic is that you just kept praying over and over and over and over again the same prayer. So literally you began to figure out it was the... I think Catholics invented multitasking uh, because you could pray to your heart's content while you were doing everything else. And, and there were only a half a dozen prayers that you needed to know. Uh, but, you know, we don't want to be that way. It, it is a relationship. So, so consider my meditation. That's a way of asking the Lord to understand more than the mere words David sang to him. By his words, David could only hope to represent his deeper thoughts and perceptions. These were his inner meditations. We're not talking about meditation in some weird Eastern sense where you empty your mind. Some of you are much closer to that than others. At least, you know, first service, never mind. Anyway, (laughs) Christian meditation is when you set your mind on, on the truth of God's word. Uh, but here David is saying, look, I, I, I have deep thoughts that I'm trying to communicate and words will not adequately express the longings or the loneliness or the joys or the jubilations of my heart. And so, Lord, just please consider more than my words. Most of us struggle at some level to communicate. Thankfully, today we have emoticons to help us. So I can say, I hate you. Happy face. <laughs> And then you don't know what I just said, but I'm, I'm insured by the happy face that nobody can hold it against me. So whenever you write something online, just put a happy face next to it, okay? Even if it's tragic. And it's, I think it's, it'll, when you go to court, uh, you just say, what do you want from me? And you know what? Quit being so serious online. I just want to see pictures of what you ate. Or your pets. (laughs) Verse 2, give heed to the voice of my cry, my king and my God, for to you I will pray. David didn't put all his prayers to music, but this one he, he understood deserved that voice. It more effectively communicated as a song. He must have had that that imagine the thrill of David just knowing that God had given him this prayer as a song, that that it was his how does this inspiration thing work? But it's his genuine prayer. Uh, from the from the bottom of his heart and and from all of his meditations and and yet at the same time he recognizes hey this one this is inspired this is from the lord and it deserves to be set to music and in this case flute music will be perfect his prayer was a cry that might suggest urgency or it might be that he was having trouble expressing his heart and a song you know it just does communicate more than mere words that's why jim croce could sing i'll have to say i love you what 
in a song because words were not enough. Numerous artists have covered your song singing, my gift is my song and what? This one's for you. And so sometimes we need more than mere words and somehow music enhances our communication. By the way, this is a good time uh, as any to remind ourselves that God sings to us. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is in your midst. The mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. It almost sounds like God is singing a lullaby there, humming a lullaby over you. Remember when your kids were tiny? They were just little so cute. You tried to sing them to sleep with. And then you put them in the little crib and then they would start crying. And that was fun for the first hour. (laughs) And then you read my first 300 babies and you just shut the door and let them cry it out. But anyway, I have so much guilt. But sometimes it does seem like God is humming a lullaby. Other times the song seems more like a tragic opera. If you, what, what kind of a musical are you in right now, Gene? I am in a tragic opera uh, where the hero is going to be destroyed. But regardless your blessings or your buffeting, you have the Lord as a mighty minstrel. He is singing over you. He knows the story. Verse three, my voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord, in the morning I will direct it to you and I will look up. Should we have morning devotions? Sure. We qualify that for those who are on shift work whose morning is the night. So the idea is that you get up and spend time with the Lord. When I was a young Christian, not in a legalistic way, but in a really love-prompted way, we used to have a saying, no Bible, no breakfast. And, uh, you know, because the idea was that I need spiritual food more than I need my daily food. And so uh, David was praying, but this is not his morning devotion. Uh, He was praying his morning prayer at a prescribed time when morning prayers were offered in the tabernacle. This is one he put to music to be sung during morning prayer. Devotions are great, but they aren't anything by themselves. It's not devotions and done. We must have a sense of God's presence at all times, be listening for him as well as conversing with him. Uh, I haven't thought this through, so it'll probably be lame, but it just came to me. But Uh, In a sense, let's think of God as your GPS. You don't know where you're going, and and yet you've got the GPS. Let's say it's a good GPS that you can trust, (laughs) not one that's going to lend you in the ocean, you know, or something like that. And and so each step of the way uh, of your path, you're going to be directed by that voice that comes on. Turn right in 100 feet, you know, that kind of thing. Any of you download Waze, W-A-Z-E? It's a, man, what is wrong? Oh, you've got it, right? One of the voices is Cookie Monster. Turn right! Yum, 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 yum. (laughs) Then I realized the other day you can record your own voice. And so I did, like, you know, the one that I love the most, rerouting, (laughs) rerouting. So I just turn it on, even though I know where I'm going, so I can hear myself talk. But anyway, it reminds me of that voice. So you're you're listening for that voice. You're coming up on an intersection. You think, is this where I turn left? And then the voice says, yeah, go ahead and turn left. And not as in a specific sense. I mean, God's not going to say, put on black socks. Now put on your tennis shoes. No, wait a minute, loafers. You know, and that, it's not that kind of thing. But we should be listening for God's direction along the path all the time. David said in the morning he'd look up. That's the equivalent of the Apostle Paul saying, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above. 
We talk about having a mindset, and that means we have an approach to life. You might call it a philosophy of life. In fact, all of the world's so-called wisdom in philosophy or religion or psychology is a mindset based on the assumption of its founder. And so Freud decides he wants to tell you what the human mind and soul is like, and so he has a certain mindset, and you follow that. Uh, it's an assumption. And we know that it's not correct because there's umpteen thousands of different psychologies and philosophies and religions, and they all have a mindset, and they're all different. More than a mindset, we who are in Christ are to set our minds by what is above, by Jesus risen and returning. We're not assuming anything. We have facts. We set our mind, uh, and it sets us and keeps us on the righteous path. It tells us, in a sense, it guides us. It, 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 it gives us barriers and, and boundaries and uh, parameters. I set my mind. I look to the word. And I say, hey, I'm confused about something. This thing is happening in my marriage. What should I do? I set it by what's in the word, not by what's in my therapist or in psychology or in my heart. I do this because God says to do it, and I'm set on that. If you set your watch to whatever crazy time, you'd be late all the time, right? As you get in the morning, say, I'm going to set my watch right now. Okay, whatever time it is, it is. oh, dinner time. That, that would be stupid. And yet people go through life and they say, well, I, I'm going to just have this mindset. And then Christians sometimes say, well, I set my mind by the word in every other area but this one. Because in this one, I think I'm right and God's wrong. And so we want to set our minds on things above. There are going to be perils along that path. They're described next. But before we walk with David through them, let's see how he did approach the day, beginning in verse 11. Let all those who rejoice, uh, but let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those who also love you be, uh, love your name rather, be joyful in you. The first thing we notice is David's repetition, rejoice, joy, and joyful. Setting his mind above was a kind of tilling the ground so that the fruit of joy could flourish in his day. First, always possible for a believer, someone who trusts the Lord, to rejoice. We don't always rejoice, but the word says we can. Second, our joy can be strong like a shout rather than a whisper. We shout because God defends us. And so it's one thing to say, well, yeah, I have joy, but I really am kind of mousy about it. You know, I'd, I'd, I know I have joy because I have to. But this is a, hey, I, I have joy because of the Lord. And, and that's why he says in the end, all those who love Jesus are joyful in him. And maybe that should be the first thing, just because it's a list of three. I mean, that seems to be the most important. I'm joyful in him. And that reminds me to bring forth the fruit of joy and to do that in a, in a boisterous way, as it were. Often in this life on this earth, it can seem as though God is doing anything but defending you or his people. And many times in my life, and I know in your lives as well, it seems like he has withdrawn and left you standing alone. In our fellowship, many have died. More have diseases. Around the world, Christians are more persecuted than all other groups of people. Yet we can rejoice and have joy and be joyful. We know that there is suffering and we know why. It's on account of sin. Satan is the God of, the ruler of this world. We know that Jesus has conquered sin and Satan and death. We know that the Lord is coming to complete that conquering. And we know that his long suffering waits right now because he wants more to come to repentance rather than perish eternally. We love the Lord and are joyful in him for who he is, for what he is doing, 
and for what he will do. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous with favor. You will surround him as with a shield. A shield presupposes warfare. A boy once said to Achilles, they say you're a god. They say you can't be killed. The warrior responded, then I wouldn't be bothering with this armor now, would I? And that's true. So when God says he's your shield, you think, hey, that's great. Nothing can touch me. It means you're in a war. David was a warrior, although later in his life, much of his trouble was self-caused. Early on in his career, he was engaged in much spiritual warfare. His king, Saul, hurled spears at him. Think you're having trouble at work? David's job was to sing and to soothe Saul because he had an evil spirit. And when he got into a mood, he would hurl a spear at David. And so that's a tough day at work. That's worthy of a grievance for sure. He was hunted as a fugitive for quite some time. Caves were his dwelling places. He was often betrayed. Regardless, he considered God his shield. When it seems the weapons of the enemy have penetrated our shield, believe that the penetration need not be into our spirit. God's grace is still sufficient for us no matter what happens to our bodies. So let's return briefly to this idea of mindset versus setting your mind. There can be a Christian mindset that because I'm saved, nothing too horrible is really going to happen. If something does, it's just a test and it will soon pass. I think you know by now that that's not realistic. We need to set our minds by looking up, by looking forward, by seeing ourselves raised or raptured. Then whatever befalls us in our journey can be endured with the grace of God. Uh, some of you have a life verse, uh, and I think that's a great thing. I've never been able to really think what would my life verse be. Um, but I, I think a great life verse for a person or for everyone, kind of a sub-life verse, is Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It, it captures your entire life. If you're alive, it's for Christ. It's towards Christ. It's to serve Christ. It's to love Christ. It's to follow Christ. The worst thing that could happen to you is that you would die, and that is a gain because then you see Christ face to face. And so great life verse, it'll take you through a lot of sufferings. Your path is imperiled by the profane, verses 4 through 10. Journeying a path fraught with peril, that's one of the most common themes in storytelling. Whether it's the yellow brick road or the way through the mines of Moria, enemies are going to abound. Verse 8 uh, David says, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face. God's righteousness are simply the things he has revealed to us that are right and good. Uh, we might quote Paul again from Philippians and say, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of a good report, if there is any virtue or anything praiseworthy, those are the things that are characterizing righteousness. And so David said, hey, that's how I want to walk today. I've prayed and now I'm going to go out into the world and I want to do the right thing and think the right thoughts. But he found, as we do, profane people whose dedication is to hinder him. Verse four, for you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. Now, we would say this is obvious, but something far more important is being said here. It is stating unequivocally that God is never to be thought of as causing or held responsible for sin. He is absolutely holy and good. He never determines wickedness or evil. They are the result of the free will fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. I'm going to start calling it the free fall. God, for his part, 
has worked and is working to redeem and restore what our free will ruined. Everybody blames God for what's happening and for all the tragedies and every hurricane and every tornado, those kinds of things. And they are tragic. They come from the evil heart of men and the ruin of creation that happened in the Garden of Eden. And as I'm fond of telling you, the minute that God, uh, you know, came to Adam and Eve and, and heard what they had done and pronounced his judgment, he also said he was coming to deal with it as a man and take care of it. And you know what? We are such obstinate creatures that it's taken uh, these many thousands of years in order for us to, to, to still be waiting for the coming of the Lord. But God is long suffering, not willing that any should perish. He says, the boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. Uh, iniquity. Boasting is the byproduct of pride. The proud that opposed David would be dealt with in due time. His declaration that they shall not stand in his sight tells us that in the restoration of all things, there will be no pride and no possibility of pride. Of course, in the meantime, as we see God moving providentially towards his prophesied end, the proud and pride remain a great peril to righteousness. We're surrounded by proud people, and we find ourselves being gripped by pride, uh, wanting to be recognized and things like that. And so it's a constant struggle. Now, does God really hate all workers of iniquity? Or we would say, does God hate sinners? God hating sinners is a struggle for commentators. You might think this is easy, but it's not. There, this is where some would quickly say, God hates the sin, but loves the sinner. The trouble is that's not what David actually says. He says God hates the workers of iniquity. Then there are those whose answer is to blame this on the generally curmudgeonly nature of the one they call the God of the Old Testament. It's as if God in the Old Testament is a, you know, kind of a curmudgeonly old man and he wants to do things, but Jesus says, if you, you're gonna have to go through me and, and they have this thing going on. The problem with that is that Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus acts exactly like the Father, exactly like the God of the Old Testament. There is a group of folks for whom God hating sinners is not a problem. Those who adhere to reformed doctrine and also believe in what's called double predestination think God hating sinners is normal. They say that before creation, God chose a select group of humans whom he would save. They're predestined to be saved. But that means he passed over multitudes of sinners. They are predestined to be lost. It'd be like me saying, I did it opposite last service, so you guys are in trouble this service. It'd be like me arbitrarily saying, everyone on my right, your left, is doomed to hell, and you guys are saved. You'll hear the gospel and get saved. No hope for you. Uh, and so God hates sinners by withholding his saving grace from them. Even those who believe this say that it's not taught in the Bible. But they say if, if God predestines some to salvation, he must also predestine others to damnation. Didn't we just read that God doesn't do anything evil and wicked? How can he do that? And so that's just not biblical. Um, evangelicals like ourselves like to point out that hate can mean to love less. And that's real. Jesus, for example, said you were to love him but hate your family. And that might be true in passages that contrast love and hate. There are plenty of them. David didn't contrast them. He simply said, God hates sinners. Now, I'm not going to solve this, but here's what I believe today. One problem we have is that our hatred is mostly selfish and sinful, 
So we don't want to think of God as hating. If God loves, then God hates. God hates sinners. We read it here and elsewhere. For example, in Proverbs 6, there's a list of seven things God hates. Several of them are the sinner, not just the sin. But what does God's hatred of sinners really look like? Well, I mentioned Adam and Eve, the original human sinners. If God hates sinners, he must have hated them. He came to them and he decreed for them temporal and eternal punishment. They died spiritually. They began to die physically. And eternal death in the form of conscious torment, suffering, separated from God in hell was their future. But then he immediately promised to come as one of them to save them because he so loved the world. And so I'm not ready to modify a familiar phrase and say, God hates you, but has a wonderful plan for your life. I mean, that needs a lot of context. And so don't be doing that. But it's not wrong. God hates sinners, but he saves them. He offers salvation to them. And his hatred is something we can't understand. We we talk about God being angry, don't we? And we understand there's a righteous anger that we almost never have. We like to think we have it, but we almost never do. And so God has these emotions. And here's the real problem. We really don't like to think about God as having emotions. We like to think of him as analytical. And it's hard. It's hard for commentators. It's hard for us to talk about the emotions of God, even though they're all over scripture. We are made in whose image? God's image. Now, we're, we're flawed, obviously, and that's an understatement. But these emotions that we have, God has emotions and has made us with emotions too. And so a simple way of understanding this is just to say God hates sinners, but we don't understand what that means. It seems to mean that he judges them relationally for their sin, but he turns right around and loves them so much that he dies for them. And so verse six, you shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. These were some of the things that imperiled David along his path. Falsehood, that means people were flat out lying to and about him. Bloodthirsty, in his case, people actually wanted him dead. They didn't want to just ruin his life. And deceitful, deceit is worse than lies because you don't see the betrayal coming until it's too late. As for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship towards your holy temple. God dwelt among his people, Israel, in the tabernacle and later the temple. We forget this, that his actual presence was in uh, the Ark of the Covenant and and over the tabernacle and the temple. Something David would have undoubtedly written a lot of Psalms about is that today believers are God's temple, both individually and corporately. Worship towards your holy temple is the direction Jews faced when praying three times daily. Note as well that there was no temple when David sung this only the tabernacle, but by faith he knew it would be built. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face. For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. David recognized that all manner of evil and destruction proceeded out of the inward part. The Apostle Paul quoted from this in Romans 13, or excuse me, 313, when talking about the total depravity of mankind. Pick almost any recent film or television show or series about a catastrophe causing what they call an apocalypse. The hero or heroines are always trying to travel somewhere. They need to get somewhere safe. They're imperiled at every turn by all manner of the worst of humanity. Sometimes it's monsters. 
Other times it's just people who in 10 minutes have reverted to murder and mayhem because they are doing everything they can to survive. And that's what makes these shows so much fun to see the darkest parts of human beings. David could have been the star of The Walking Dead. Zombies, though, would be easier to kill than the kinds of things that he had to endure. But that basically is what he's saying is that I'm on a path and all around me is the worst of humanity trying to kill me and to say nothing of my own wicked heart. And he's asking the Lord to be with him. As a believer in Christ, you should expect peril. Every day you get through mostly shielded, that's an anomaly. That's a good day. Verse 10, pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against you. Something else we're going to encounter in the Psalms quite often are statements of judgment, even curses upon God's enemies. They're called imprecatory statements or imprecatory Psalms. It seems wrong, but is it? Well, again, there are many schools of thought. A place I want to start in putting this into biblical perspective is with our own desire for the Lord to come. We don't realize it, but in a sense, you know, if I ask for the Lord to come, I'm also simultaneously asking for him to judge unbelievers. Because once he comes and raptures us, we understand that at some point the great tribulation is going to start. And uh, it's, it's going to be very difficult for people to get saved during that time. And so every time we pray, come Lord Jesus, we are in one sense praying a judgment on God's enemies. Our proper longing for Christ's return and final judgment is tempered by our desire that as his long suffering waits, many sinners would come to repentance and faith. And so if, if somebody's really bothering me and if I feel to uh, move to say, may your teeth break off in your mouth and may all of your children be cursed, I might want to just say, come Lord Jesus. <laughs> because that's going to accomplish the same thing and I'll, be, uh, I'll have plausible deniability. And so we do want, but the truth is the Lord is going to come at some point uh, and, and it will begin his wrath pouring out on this earth. And so uh, I don't think we really, whatever the theology of it is, we don't need to pray imprecatory prayers. Uh, they're, they're unnecessary because God's got that under control. We just need to serve him and preach the gospel. These psalms, whether written to be sung or not, are considered poetry. Poetry is not propositional. It's meant to be emotional. It gives us a feeling, or it should, uh, in a way that uh, studying other things doesn't. We're going to try to be careful to not ruin the psalms by treating them as prose. But for your part, you're going to need to let yourself be moved as you hear God singing over you. You're going to have to open up to some emotions in church. I'm not saying you get emotional and all of a sudden we're going to go all Pentecostal. That's not the issue. But we can't study the Psalms the way that we study the rest of Scripture. They're songs and songs move us. Uh, I'll probably talk about this again and, and uh, you know, get into this a little bit. But uh, there's a, I forget the chapters now, but in the book of Judges, there's a story of J.L., uh, she's the one who hammered a tent peg through the king's head and kind of stuck him to the ground. Anyway, great story. Something you want, <laughs> something you're going to read to the kids. Uh, but but uh, there's a, a chapter where the story is told in prose form, and then there's a song about it right after. And there's differences because the song is trying to elicit emotion. 
It's trying to capture the sense of what happened and how glorious and, and grand it was. And, and so that's what the Psalms are. The Psalms aren't doctrinal. They're not propositional, although they're, about, they're full of doctrine and, and there are things that we're going to learn from them. But we need to be open to the fact that there are times when God wants to really, really get into our emotions. And that's why maybe we go to the Psalms when we are so emotional. It's mostly, uh, the Psalms are your most go-to portion of scripture, are they not? When life is just crashing, whether it's the Shepherd Psalm or Psalm 51 or some other favorite Psalm, that's where we find our comfort and our strength. And it's because God gets in touch with that time of emotion in our life. And so uh, bear that in mind, uh, pray for this study, suggest some Psalms you'd like to see us handle, and we'll do our best.